good to see you here this morning. We're going to begin a new series this morning. We did wrap up the book of Acts, and I have uh, in my plan to go through a few different more topical series this year. Last year, we did a lot of exposition, working our way through different texts in the Bible. Uh, and this year, we're going to include a, a few more topical uh, kind of studies. So we're going to be moving around in our Bibles a little bit and, and reading uh, from a few different places as we study this uh, topic together. Uh, this series is entitled Faith in the Family, uh, with our focus being family relationships. Uh, our focus throughout this year is uh, to be the body of Christ, to be the family of God. Uh, and in that family, we have a lot of families, uh, and a lot of those are, are throughout the audience, and some we have uh, most of the family in attendance, which is really interesting. Um, but in a lot of cases, a lot of people here have family members who are not here, and, and in some cases, family members who uh, don't really know the Lord and don't really uh, pay much attention to any uh, spiritual uh, ideas or thoughts or scriptures that we might want to share with them. So uh, we're going to focus our, our minds on how we can be a better influence for them and how we can uh, fulfill our role, whatever relationship role we have uh, as a son, as a daughter, as a, a husband, as a wife, as a, a brother, sister, uh, father, mother. We're going to be thinking about all of those different roles and relationships and trying to understand how we can best serve those around us who we love so much and we desire for them to see and know the truth. Um, many of you don't know this, but I, I did grow up going to a Baptist uh, congregation with my aunt. My mom and dad didn't go too much. Um, but mom and dad loved God. They, they, they appeared to love God and the things that they said and the way that they acted and the way that they lived. But um, they never really cared that much about attending services or anything along those lines. And, and my brother kind of fell into the same idea and the same way of being. And, and so growing up, I didn't really know what to think about all of that. And maybe some of you can relate to that. Um, but I did see a lot of faith in uh, my neighbors who were my aunt and uncle and my cousins. Uh, they would, I'd walk over to their house and I'd be there uh, after school. Sometimes they'd pick me up and my uncle would be there with his Bible open, studying his Bible. Uh, they'd be taking me to, to, to services and, and trying to help me understand the truth on, on some level. So uh, you never know what kind of inf impact, influence you're going to have on the people around you. Because my parents, honestly, they didn't teach me much about God or the Bible to, to really draw me in. But I saw that in my aunt and uncle and I, it opened up my mind to understanding the truth about God. And, and we can see whenever faith is infused in the family in some way, it can have an impact. It can influence people. Uh, and so ultimately, that's the goal. That's our desire is to have an impact, to have an influence on family members. And we never know what kind of influence we're having or how we're going to have that, that impact on somebody else. Uh, that we may not even be thinking about. So uh, we certainly want to do that. We certainly have hearts that, that reach out and that long for the day when people we're family members with who don't know the Lord would come to know uh, who God is. And I myself have felt that. And I, I, I sympathize with those of you who have family members who don't really care that much. Uh, one of the texts that has really stuck out to me 
and thinking about my family and trying to reach out to them and trying to encourage them and thinking about even those in my own household, my own children as they grow up and, and their, uh, the attitude that I have toward them and their salvation is Romans chapter 9, which uh, Paul is writing, and he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'll never forget reading that the first time and just tears just flowing out. Just uh, amazed at, at the words that he spoke that are, are the very words that I felt. And maybe the words that you feel as well sometimes. And, and we think about our family relationships. It cuts deep to our hearts. Uh, as we as we as we long for the day that they would come to know the truth and that we would feel assured in their salvation and their their genuine uh, their genuine faith and their genuine love for the Lord uh, would be uh, exposed to us that we might feel comforted by that. You see, Paul saying, "I have great sorrow and unceasing joy," and even saying, "I wish I could be accursed so that they could then know the truth and believe the truth." What a wonderful heart of love and care that he had. And as he says these things, you know, he's, he's obviously talking about Israel as a whole. But I wonder if there's immediate family members that he knows of that are just completely rejecting Christ. And that he's just wishing and desiring with all his heart that he could reach out to them and help them. Uh, and I'm sure that he has and he is working on that. And I hope that many of us also are doing those very same things that we're reaching out longing for the day when those family members would know the truth and, and striving to set the proper example for them to see and know the love that God has for them. Uh, but that's, that's our goal as, as we come together is to encourage one another in that struggle. You're not alone if that's your situation right now. You're not alone. There are others in this very room who are shedding tears and thinking about those that they love who have, who have not obeyed the gospel or who are, who are not yet who uh, are rejecting the gospel, rebelling against it. Uh, there are others who are going through that same kind of trial and struggle. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit over the next month about uh, families and, and about those relationships, not because of any particular issues that are going on in the congregation, not because um, somebody told me to talk about this, but just because this is an important thing that I think a lot of us are are struggling with and dealing with that I really wanted us as a family to come together and to think about and to dwell on and study. So that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about the beginning of a family. Uh, families begin whenever uh, two people come together. Now we read Genesis chapter 2 and uh, the, the scripture reading this morning and the, the picture of God creating the man and then bringing before him every animal and letting the man see none of them are right for him. None of the created beings are a match for him. And then God, after allowing him to see that and understand that, putting Adam to sleep and forming a, a, his wife, and giving him to her, and him having this love poem, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's, it's this very first bit of poetry we read as he speaks about his wife, who he uh, is now going to love and, and have a family with. He says, uh, you know, that 
that they must leave, men must leave their father and mother, and they must be joined to their wives. And that is the, the creation of a family. Uh, that there is a, a family that is now developed in the marriage of two people. When God gave Eve to Adam, and Adam took her to be his wife, they became the very first family. And I also wanted to notice that God, in, in seeing everything that he created, he said it was, all, it, was, it, was, it was good, but whenever he saw that Adam was alone, he said, that's, you know, that's not good. It's the one thing he said that was not good. But then, after it was all done and, and Eve was created, he said it was very good. And so we see that the relationship between a man and woman and them joining together and then becoming a family, the first you know, uh, uh, creating a family unit is a good thing. It's something that is increasing goodness in the world. It's not a bad thing for, for two people to join together uh, and to be married. And so uh, it's an exciting thing to think about, and, and a lot of us have uh, experienced the joys of, of entering into marriage with someone else. Some of us uh, have not experienced that. Some of us uh, experienced it so long ago, and, and maybe uh, since then we've lost the one that we were uh, married to. But, uh, you know, this, this is a picture of God's desire for man, that they would enjoy that relationship uh, and, and, and have one another, that they would have com com communion with one another, they would have uh, a relationship, a bond with, with someone else, and know and experience what that's like to be one flesh with someone else. But as we, as we think about, you know, the New Testament, we move forward. Uh, the picture of marriage hasn't really changed. Jesus goes back to Genesis and, and brings up marriage. And marriage is, you know, still the joining together of a man and a woman in uh, union that God joins them together. And Jesus says, let not man separate. But whenever we come into the New Testament, we have more information and understanding about what's going on whenever a man and a woman get together. If you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Very interesting text to study in, in lines with, with uh, marriage. We're going to be coming back to chapter 7 again a little bit later, but uh, this, this text kind of stood out to me as I was thinking about uh, marriage and the initiation of marriage uh, and the reason why we get married. Look at verse 6. Paul says, uh, now as a, con a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. As you, as you think about marriage, and, and some of you singles are like rolling your eyes like, oh no, another marriage, a marriage sermon. You know, I don't, I don't want to hear that. You know? um, maybe some of you don't really have a desire to get married. Maybe some of you really can't get married uh, for, for various reasons. Um, and we, we need to understand the reason behind marriage. And, and as Paul, he kind of dives deeper into it as, a, as an unmarried man. He reveals to us some very interesting information. He says, as a, a concession, I say, I wish all were as I am. I wish all were single as I am. Well, that's interesting. He actually values 
being alone. You know, in Genesis 1, we see it's very good for a man to have a wife and for them to have a relationship and to experience that communion, joining together. But here Paul says, I wish you were like me. I wish you didn't have, uh, you know, someone that you were married to. That's, that's kind of interesting. But he says that there's a struggle that unmarried people go through. And if you're unmarried, you've ever been unmarried, which that's everybody here, right? You know a little something about the struggle of being unmarried. And Paul points it out. He says um, to the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. That's interesting. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better that uh, they marry than that they burn with passion for one another. So as Christians, we have this kind of instruction about marriage, this kind of description of marriage that, that uh, what happens in our day and in our society is there's a wooing that happens, and then that wooing and, and enticing and, and, and the stuff that men do to try to get women to, to, to like them and the stuff women do to try to get men to pursue them and all of that happens, and then there's a, an obsessive passion that comes upon the man and upon the woman, and that there's this desire to be together uh, in, in a way that is only appropriate for a married couple. He says, if you're in that situation and you have that passion for one another and you lack self-control, it's better for you to marry. Because ultimately the sexual relationship is reserved for marriage. I just find this whole description interesting. As Paul reveals all of this and talks about all of this, uh, he's making a point to Christians that it's better if you can have self-control and not get married. And, and later on we're going to see why. He, he thinks it's better because you can devote yourself more fully to serving the Lord if you do that. But he says, because some of you lack self-control... God's given you marriage. Marriage is good to help you overcoming your problem with self-control. But self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> so by, by getting married, we're all basically confessing, I have a problem with self-control, <laughs> which is a fruit of the Spirit, which is something that I'm supposed to have down pat, you know. Um, but it's very interesting because what it's telling us is it's okay. God has given us marriage to fulfill uh, the desire God created in us that is, is inside of us that's pursuing that kind of intimate relationship with one another. He says it's better for us to marry than to burn with passion. It's better for us to not have that passion within us than to have that passion for God. But if we have that passion within us that's developed, it's better for us to marry. And so we marry, and then what's supposed to happen? At that point, a family is created. And what's really fascinating is, as we study marriage, as we're going to be studying it a little bit more today, we see marriage is actually helping us overcome our weaknesses from the beginning. We lack self-control, and so we get married. And then we're overcoming the weakness of self-control. That's how we start off our marriage. And it's interesting because that is exactly what God is hoping that the marriage relationship would do for us. That it would help us to overcome our weaknesses. Help us to overcome our struggles by joining ourselves together 
we become stronger and we, we develop synergy and work together to become even better for the Lord because we obviously can't handle it on our own. We're struggling on our own and we need someone else to be with us. This is an interesting perspective to me because in our world, marriage is, is not really viewed this way at all, is it? I mean, marriage is just like this thing that everybody does. Or actually, it's becoming this thing that nobody does for fear of divorce. Uh, because, I mean, who needs to get married? We can just do everything that married people do and not worry about getting married and not have any entanglement. That's the way a lot of people view marriage today. But it's interesting as Paul writes about this, it becomes very clear that the sexual relationship was intended to be for married people. And that that was intended to be something that helps them overcome the weaknesses and the struggles and helps them to have someone to work alongside and to grow stronger spiritually. And that's ultimately what God desires from us. He wants the marriage relationship to be something really amazing on the earth. God has a big plan for marriage. And it's not just to help us overcome the self-control problems that we have. But it's that he would develop us and train us and help us to shine a light for everybody to see and understand how wonderful God is. He has roles that he's designated for the man and for the woman in marriage. And whenever we fulfill those roles, we are glorifying God in a way that, that no single person can. As you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, you look at verse 21 beginning and it says now as the church submits to Christ oh, whoa, 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 21 sorry uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. As you read through that, notice that the first, uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is, is, is the encouragement that he's giving to the whole congregation in Ephesus, submitting to one another out of reverence, that there's this uh, universal submission of the body of Christ to one another, loving each other and, and serving each other. And then he takes that to a more detailed and family-oriented uh, description to say, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, serve your wives. You see, there's this relationship uh, role that we're supposed to fulfill that is submitting and, and serving one another. And, and for those guys that are like, that's right, you're supposed to submit to me, right? Uh, well, she can say, that's right, you're supposed to serve me which is, in some ways, much harder uh, than submitting. 
uh, to, to, to a man. So there's this expectation that God has that the man would be the servant, that he would be a Christ-like figure, that he would be providing and serving for his bride to adorn her and to beautify her and to cleanse her, to watch out for her spiritually and to, to, to encourage her to do the things that God desires for, you, for her to do, that the, the, the wife would be submissive and supportive of her husband, that, he would lift, that she would lift him up and encourage him in the things that he's supposed to do, uh, and, and that there would be a fulfillment of these roles is intended to represent Christ and the church. That as the world sees the husband acting as Christ and the wife acting as the church, they would come to know and understand the love that God has for them. And they would desire to submit themselves to Christ. That's the purpose that God has in the marriage relationship. He commonly refers to the relationship the church has with Christ as a marriage relationship. We are the bride of Christ. So that image is, is throughout Scripture. It's trying to encourage us and help us to have the right mindset about the spiritual family that we're in by helping us understand the physical family that we're in and the way that's supposed to go, that we each have a role to play. Well, there's a problem in our society with this. And the problem goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the year. The problem is the consumer mindset. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but, uh, you know, just like the church has this kind of consumer mindset thinking about, I put all this in, what kind of deal am I going to get? What am I going to get out of it? So we can approach marriage in much the same way. And instead of thinking about marriage as a, a role that I'm stepping into to fulfill in order to uh, have, you know, some of that weakness, the lack of self-control, you know, built up and strengthened. Instead of thinking about it that way, we think about it as the way that I find all of the satisfaction that I'm looking for. I find the, the romantic enjoyment and fulfillment that I've always sought after. And all I have to do is just say these vows and then this person's going to give me all of those things. And the God-sized hole inside of me will be filled by this person. And that's not at all what God had in mind. Notice in each role there is sacrifice that's being made. The husbands sacrificing themselves for the wife as Christ does the church. The wives sacrificing their will in order to submit to the headship of the husband. It's, it's, it's not an easy thing. It's not a thing where you're, you're putting in a little bit and you're getting a lot out of it. You're putting in everything and you're trusting that they will put in everything too and that the end result is not a gain for me but the end result is a gain for God to be glorified. And that is overall the picture that we have of marriage. It's not a consumer kind of picture. It's a giving and sacrificing kind of picture. How many of our marriages are succeeding in that? In the world around us, it's just, it's falling apart. There's, I mean, even in my own marriage, the first three years of marriage, whenever I entered into it, it was not this, I've got this wonderful purpose and, and we're going to encourage each other spiritually and we're going to be very focused. It was very consumeristic. It was very, I'm angry. Why aren't you giving me all the things that I expect you to give me? 
You know, why aren't you fulfilling my every need? I feel like there's still a hole inside of me. You're not filling it. Why aren't you doing that? I thought by getting married, all these problems would be fixed. We waited five years to get married. We met each other in high school. We started dating. We decided we're going to wait till college is over. Five whole years of struggling with self-control <laughs> when the passion's burning within us. And then we finally get to marriage, and then it doesn't, you know, it's not everything. It's some. And, you know, she doesn't do some things that I thought would just fix themselves, and that would be part of the, you know, that's not how it works. And so we had to learn. We had to grow out of the consumeristic kind of mindset. And we had to start learning how to, how to address the marriage issue that was going on for us in the first three years. We had to learn how to respect each other, how to love each other, how to understand each other. And... You know, maybe you've got similar issues. Maybe you've got similar problems in your marriage. I know there's quite a few newlyweds here. I hope everything's going really well for you and you're flourishing and you, you've learned from other people's mistakes and you've listened carefully, unlike us. I don't know if anybody here has any problems at all, but I think there's a lot of, of marriages that really struggle, especially at the beginning, with a lot of selfishness and unwillingness to give in to the role that God has committed to us to serve him. Common practice today is to put on a show. Everything's okay. Maybe every married person in here has experienced this. I know I have. You're on your way to services and you're, you're barking at each other and you're, you're angry as can be about something that doesn't even matter. You walk in the doors and you got a great smile on your face and you just say hey to everybody like nothing's wrong. Maybe some of you have been living with that for years, and maybe now you don't even bark at each other anymore. You don't even care about each other anymore. Whenever you walk in the doors, you smile as though everything's okay. That's not God's purpose for marriage, being fulfilled. You know, really, that's Satan taking what God had planned for us that's for our good and distorting it and destroying it the family that God has joined together. That's what Satan wants. He wants to destroy us. He's working hard to create inside of the man uh, an ego, you know, a, a pride. He's working to, to, to pull out of him angry outbursts and, and disrespectful judgments against his wife. To not lift her up on a pedestal, but to throw her down and say, what are you? He's working inside of the wife to have independent behavior. To think, I don't need you. And that's the whole society's telling her to think that way. And he's working in her too to think, I don't need you. I can tell you, I can do things better than you. To be disrespectful to him. To maybe even be dishonest toward him. Or to be manipulative uh, toward him. Satan's working to get her to step out of her role. He's working to, to get the husband to step out of the role of a servant and to just sit back and take it easy and let the woman do everything. That's what he wants. Instead of the perfect picture that God gives us of Christ in the church being represented in the husband and the wife, everything gets twisted. And that's what Satan wants. 
we have to stand up and say, no, we're not going to live that way. We have to see what Satan's doing and attack it. What's the solution? We have to fight against Satan's attacks. If you're here and your marriage is foundering, you're just, you've been living rebelliously against the role that God has given you. You've not been showing the love and respect and honor to your spouse, not been submitting to them, not been serving them, not been caring for them as you ought to. It's time to fight against that. And it's, it's going to be a continual fight. Okay, I'm not perfect in this. Me and Jenna were just arguing last week. <laughs> And I've noticed that as I get exhausted or as I get stressed, that all of these kind of things start coming out of me. And I say things that aren't really true, and I speak in ways that are harsh. And it's like, if I had just said that a little bit differently, it would have come out, you know, gently, and we'd have had a great conversation. But we just, we, we do this. This bubbles up inside of us. And if we're not careful, we can lose the, the side of who we are and what we're supposed to do as a married couple. God wants us to remember that we made a vow to love, honor, and cherish that person until death. Until death. Satan wants us to forget the vow. Satan wants to act like the vow is no big deal. Everybody around you is just walking away from it, and they're, they're fine. Look at them now. They're happy. They've got somebody else that's making them happy. I can't tell you how many young couples I've talked to who have friends who are divorced, and that's who they're talking to to get marriage advice. How do you think that's going? No, that's not going to help you. Okay? Uh, you have a vow that you made before God, and there's an expectation that you would fulfill the vow until death parts you. And if, if one of you breaks the vow and one of you uh, is, is adulterous, then there can be grounds for divorce and separation, but... The goal is not separation. The goal is Christ in the church. The goal is servanthood and submission. The goal is representing God in a way that glorifies him. And we're, we're supposed to stick to that because vows mean something to God. We're making a commitment. We ought to follow through. We also need to learn to see our spouse differently. I love the picture in the Song of Solomon. If you want to turn back to Song of Solomon, I'm going to read a little bit from there. Um, in Song of Solomon, there's this love story uh, that God gives us of a woman who, who falls in love with a man, and, and, she lo and he loves her back, and they're just struggling through the temptations and the desires and the burning and the self-control and all of that's going on throughout the book. And the man throughout the book of Song of Solomon he has these poetic ways of describing this, this woman who, who he's in love with, who he's betrothed to. And he just, he looks at her from head to toe and he points out all kinds of attributes about her. And he just, he magnifies those and relates those to all kinds of things that are, that are going on uh, in, in the world around him. But it's interesting, after describing her from head to toe twice... Whenever we get to chapter uh, 7, after they've had some trials and some temptations and, and they've really struggled with the passions burning within them, he changes his description of her. And I find this very interesting. He would describe her from head to toe twice, and then we get to chapter 7 and listen to how he describes her. Verse 1, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! 
Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Guys, don't write that down for later. <laughs> your, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, again, pay no mind, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple, a king held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant are you, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. Now, I got a little bit PG-13 there, but it's in the Bible, right? So we're good. But notice how, first of all, he describes her. In this case, he starts at the sandals, and he works his way up. What does that mean? Why is he doing that? Well, you get, a, you get an idea from verse 7. Your stature is like a palm tree. You see how he's changed his perspective? He's not looking at her, looking down at her, you know, like, like guys, you know, looking at, oh, you know, goggly-eyed over. But he's, he's, he's looking at her like, wow, like amazed at her, like respecting her in all of her, appreciating her. And I think that's important. Because that's the transformation that we need to have inside of us if our marriage is floundering. Because if your marriage is, is on the ropes and you're struggling, I bet you're not looking at your spouse in awe and admiration. You've lost sight of the things that allured you at first and, and you're, not even, you're not even to the point of respecting them like a normal person that's a stranger on the street. You consider them to be lower than that. You're on the ropes. You see how Solomon has gone through the trial and the temptation and comes out of it and he starts looking at her differently. That's what we have to do. We have to put aside all the bad things that we know of, that they've done, all the times they've got their feelings hurt and they said things that, that they shouldn't have said, that cut really, really deep. We have to put all those things aside. And we have to look at them with fresh eyes in a new perspective in a way that respects them and loves them because we know ultimately that's what God is doing for us. That's the way God views us after all the things that we've done against him. And so we have to fight against Satan by fighting against this. We have to change our minds. We have to change our perspective of the person that we're married to and respect them, and honor them, and lift them up as being better than maybe we feel that they are. Look at all the positive things in this person. They're wonderful. You married them because they're wonderful, and they've changed a lot, but there's still remnants of that wonder inside of them, and we have to see that. But also, as you go back to Colossians, you notice that there's this expectation that we would not just make our life about our spouse. You know, that's something that I think I was guilty of 
whenever we were engaged for a year and a half and, and dating, really, we, we talked about marriage from like the first month, so we knew we were going to get married for a long time. But I made Jenna like everything, and she's not here, so I can talk about her, and she's like, you're, I'm not there, you're going to talk about me. I was like, yeah, I probably am. Um, but, you know, you make your spouse, you make the person that you fall in love with, you make them everything. And that's not really the right tactic, the not, not the right approach. If your marriage is struggling, maybe that's what you've done, and you need to change the way you view your spouse. And, and you need to change your focus instead of being so much on them as the one who's going to fulfill you and, and, and fill the God-sized hole, and you need to change it toward God as being the one who will fill you. Look at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And listen to this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. After he goes through this and he describes how uh, they're supposed to put on compassion and love and meekness and, and be forgiving and understanding to one another. And he fills that with, you're, you're doing this because you love God, you love Christ, and the peace of Christ is in you. And, and you have this relationship with God and you're singing praises to God, he says, because God is your faith, God is your hope, God is your trust. Love one another. I think we need to make sure that in our relationship, God is first. Spouse is second. We don't love our spouse because they're so wonderful. But we love them because we love God. We're putting our faith and trust in God. Faith has to be in the marriage for it to be successful. And that's exactly what we're called to do. And finally, the last verse we're going to go to real quick. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to turn back to that. Find this one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is just fascinating to look at from this perspective. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Wouldn't that be nice? I want you to be free from anxieties. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Families start with marriage. And whenever we have a family and whenever we have marriage, we might have some tendencies to be anxious and to have anxieties and to make a lot of our spouse and to, to really focus in on them. But what Paul's pointing to here is, I just want you to be fully devoted to the Lord, even in those relationships. 
I don't want you to have a split devotion. I don't want you to think, i got to be devoted to my wife, and God tells me to do this, and my wife tells me to do this. i got to be devoted to my No, you're devoted to the Lord first and foremost, and that's who you care about, and that's who you love, and you try to appease and try to you know, serve your, your spouse as best you can. If you're unmarried, hey, for those of you unmarried, you don't have to worry about that. You just devote yourself to the Lord, and you don't have that kind of struggle going on. Uh, if, you're, if your marriage is struggling, let God be the thing that you're most focused on. And everything else will fall into place. If you're willing to sacrifice yourself to serve the Lord and to serve others, then everything will take care of itself. I've seen it happen. I've seen a marriage that is, is on the, the point of no return. Divorce has been mentioned multiple times a spouse has been talking to all her divorced friends, and she's already talked to the lawyer, and I've talked to her and told her, this could be a complete turnaround for you. And you could be stronger than you've ever been in your life if you'll just pick up the pieces, forgive, and encourage, and, and focus on God. And, he, and she did. And everything's coming back together. And I'm like, you've gone through the worst part. You know, you've struggled through that. You know what that's like. And those who've not gone through the struggle don't know what it's like, and they haven't come through the fire refined and stronger. And that's what you can do. So if you're struggling right now and you're dealing with a lot, reach out, get help. Don't, don't put on the show and not let anybody else know. But know that it can be better than it's ever been. It may not be what you hoped and dreamed and expected marriage to be, but it can be something so much more. You know, really, a lot of times people think of uh, people who are older, they just kind of get used to each other and they're not really in love with each other. That shouldn't happen. You know, we should really be meeting each other's needs and loving each other and, and just growing more and more fond of each other as we have more life together. And I hope that you are in it for the long haul. And I hope that you're looking forward to the day when you can spend uh, eternity uh, with your spouse, not as your spouse, but as a sister or brother in Christ and with the Lord. I know I am. Uh, but it, anyway, uh, hopefully this lesson has helped you. I know it's not really an invitation type of lesson, but uh, you do have an opportunity to have a relationship with God. And if you've not taken advantage of that, we want to encourage you and help you. Uh, in any way that we can. If you'll please let us know whatever it is that you need. We're happy to assist you in any way. Uh, if you're, you're willing to receive the grace of God, he makes it available to all of us. Uh, even those who are uh, the worst of sinners, he's willing to forgive if we'll turn from our sin and put on Christ. If you need to do that, please come as we stand and as we sing.